0: Good morning, everyone. I'm glad that you're here this morning and welcome. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. If you have a Bible, um, turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the rows. So you can grab one either underneath the row Beneath you, underneath the row in front of you, underneath the row behind you, um, we want to make sure that you follow along well in the scriptures as we look at them together this morning. And uh, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, this is the section that the Lord in his providence has given us this morning as we make our way verse by verse through the Book of Luke, and uh, now before we read and explain and apply this particular text, uh, let's simply recite this month's corporate memory verse. We memorize Scripture together corporately as a church family, in hopes that God would be using the same Scripture in, a, in, in many ways uh, in the life of our church together. And so let's just simply recite September's verses, which are found in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter four, verses seven through 10. You ready? Let's recite them aloud together. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death sorry, the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Very, very good. I pray that the Lord would be transforming you through committing these verses to memory. Now, let's move into Luke's gospel. Okay, let's move into Luke's gospel and read the text that God's given us to focus on this morning as we begin chapter 15. Luke 15 verses 1 through 10, okay, let's read. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who... Repents now. What we're seeing here is God's joy in salvation. God's joy in salvation that's the particular doctrine that's being made known here, the particular teaching that's to say. God's joy, listen now, when a sinner realizes their sin, turns from their sin, and turns to God through Christ. Right? This passage shows us God's joy in salvific repentance. When the sinner realizes their sin, turns from their sin, and turns to God through Christ, God rejoices in that. This passage shows us God's joy in salvific repentance. God rejoices when a person realizes their sinful condition. And then when they turn from their sin and they surrender their life to the Lordship of Christ and embrace the true and high cost of following Jesus, to be forgiven by God and transformed by God and accepted by God. God seeks and saves the sinner, and he desires and rejoices in, he desires for and rejoices in the sinner coming to a knowledge of the truth. When the sinner does that and turns from their sin and turns to God, God rejoices in that. God loves, God celebrates, and heaven celebrates when a sinner repents and is saved. Listen, this is what God rejoices. And when the, by the Holy Spirit a sinner gets it, right? When they understand the gospel, when they turn from themselves, their sin, their wickedness, their evil from being in the kingdom of Satan and and evil when they realize they are In and living for the dominion of darkness when their eyes are open to that and then when they turn to the good and true living God through Jesus and when they turn to the kingdom of light to the kingdom of God's beloved son when the sinner turns to that when the sinner turns to live in this kingdom to live in righteousness and holiness to love him To live under his sovereign rule, under his sovereign care. And one day to live with him in heaven. Listen, when the sinner does that, God, what? Rejoices. This makes God and heaven glad. When the sinner turns from their sin, repents from living for themselves, and turns to live for Christ. Christ. That's the particular teaching that's being made known here, which is why I've entitled the message, God's Joy in Salvation. God's Joy in Salvation. If you are in here and you do not know Christ, it would be the greatest decision of your life to turn from your sin, to realize, to recognize your sinful condition, which is true of of all humankind. And to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. So this is what makes God rejoice. Do you know God's joy, listen now, is one of his communicable attributes. Communicable meaning that it's shared by his creation. Meaning meaning there's certain attributes of God that we do not share. Like his omnipotence, he's all-powerful, and you and I are what? Not. There's another attribute that we don't share, like his omniscience. God is all-knowing, and you and I are not. But there are certain attributes of God that we do share, however, to a far lesser degree. And one of those attributes is joy. And so we can understand joy to an extent, and yet God's joy is beyond our understanding. So we see in 1 Chronicles 16, splendor and majesty are before him, strength and joy are in his place. Now God is also a savior, right? One of, one of his, uh, his attributes and, and one of the things that he does is save. Uh, Zephaniah 3 tells us the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will what? Save. And the New Testament, we see that Christ came to seek and to save the lost. And throughout the New Testament and Old Testament, we are told of God's joy in saving people. God is, one of his attributes is is being joyful, is, is joy. One of The things that he does is save and you just put those two together and God rejoices also in his saving work, right? Zephaniah 3 goes on to say, the Lord your God is in the midst, the mighty one who will save, he will rejoice over you with gladness and he will quiet you by his love. He rejoices in his saving work for sinners, So God's joy also should be our joy. If you are in Christ, one of the things that should make you happy is what makes God happy, and that is his saving work through Christ, saving sinners. You should rejoice when God rejoices. That should be your joy, right? And so here we see the joy of God in seeking and saving and the glory of salvific repentance. So, I think this should cause in us a few things before we get into the context and then the specific passage. First, listen, how should we maybe respond to this today? Well, I think it should first, listen, create a desire in us. Listen, in you, listen. It should create a desire in you to come to terms with your own sin, to embrace your sinful condition, to understand your guilt before God, then to surrender everything to his lordship, to repent of your sin, to trust in Christ, to turn away from your sin and turn to God. This brings God's God joy. This would be a great decision for you to make. Second, it should not only create in us a desire for us to turn from our sin and turn toward to God through Christ, but should also cause in us a desire to see the lost around us turn from their sin and turn to Christ, right? It should cause you to desire that your neighbor and the nations would see their sinful condition, embrace Christ's demands, turn from their sin, and be saved. Heaven rejoices when this occurs. That should be your joy, to see that happen. And thirdly, not only should it cause you to desire to repent and turn to God and cause you to desire your neighbor to turn from their sin and turn to God, but it should just give you an understanding Of God and His character. So, these are great truths. Now, before we get into the divisions, listen, of this literary unit, chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, before we get into the divisions of this, let's understand briefly the context of where we sit in chapter 15 then listen, what we'll do is we'll divide up the text into headings and understand how Jesus is making this point about his joy, God's joy in salvific repentance. So let's understand right now the context of where we sit in chapter 15. Okay? Chapter 15. It's important that we understand this. If you were to read the Gospel of Luke... You could divide this into three broad sections. First, in chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 9, verse 50, this is Jesus' Galilean ministry. Okay? In chapter 9, verse 51 to chapter 19, verse 27, this is Jesus' life and ministry in Judea. It's on his way to what? To where? Jerusalem that's the journey and then in 1928 to the end of the book this is what we see is the the what is commonly known as the passion texts where we see Jesus's what death resurrection and ascension you can see the the clear divisions now We can be more specific about these divisions, and you should be to properly understand what's happening in chapter 15. You can be more specific about these divisions. Mainly this. In chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 9, verse 20, which is in that first section, the main point of the book is to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. That's the point. You see testimony after testimony, witness after witness, even the genealogy passages are all there to show that Jesus is indeed the one in which they were waiting for, the Christ, the Messiah. That's the purpose of that first section. That's important. It establishes his Messiahship in the book. And it's really Uh, capped off appropriately by Peter saying, after Jesus asks Peter, who did the crowd say that I am, right? And and he gives a a couple of answers. And then he says, Jesus says, Peter, who do uh, you say that I am? And he said, you are the Christ. And there, boom, we establish it. It's been established. Jesus is the Messiah. He is God's Christ. It's been settled. We move on from there. And Jesus describes then as the Messiah, what will have to happen. They didn't understand this. He's going to need to be, the the Messiah is not going to come and and establish uh, the, the, the earthly rule of the Jews. He's going to be rejected. He's going to die. Right? That's what's going to happen to this Messiah. And he says that anyone who follows after him will suffer the same fate. So, we see that in the first section. Then, as we move into that middle section, in chapter 9, verse 51, we start this journey to Jerusalem. In chapter 9, verse 51, it says that Jesus set his face where? To Jerusalem. This begins the journey to the cross. We are only a couple months away right now, currently, where we sit. It didn't take long to get there, but Jesus made his way around in order to do a couple of things, right? And I'm gonna explain that in a minute. But once we get to the end of that journey in 1928, the chapter and the verse, not the year, right? Once we get to that point, we know that as the triumphal what? Entry, he's made it to Jerusalem and he's going in to suffer his fate. So here we sit in this Journey to Jerusalem as we sit in chapter 15. And really, we're nearly smack dab in the middle of this. We are a couple months away from the cross, and Jesus has a couple of agendas in this journey. You say, What, well, Jesus, what do you plan to do during this journey? Well, he plans to do a couple of things, he plans to train his disciples. And he, tra- he plans to indict the Pharisees. And he also plans to train his disciples how to indict the Pharisees. <laughs> right? He's, he's doing a number of things here. But the pattern that you see is, is pretty interesting, if you were to spend some time in it. Because, listen, what Jesus is doing is he first, in that section, he calls, he invites, he trains, he sends out. These, these sent ones, the 12 and the 70 or the 72, right? He, 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 you see that process. Then he indicts the Pharisees in chapters 11 and uh, really chapters 12 through 14 mainly. And then he does it again, but he now does this with general, listen, general disciples. We see him now again call, invite, invite. And then begin to train these disciples. And so, really, chapters 15 on through the end of the journey is general discipleship training, teaching. He calls the the 12 or the 72 sent ones in the beginning of the journey. You can watch this pattern repeated. And he trains them. he, He teaches them. He sends them. And then he indicts these Pharisees, and they watch it. And then he repeats the pattern. He Invites them, and he begins to teach them and train them. And so we're sitting in this general discipleship training. That's where we sit in chapter 15. And um, this is really important because Jesus is going to teach on very practical things in these next few chapters. He's going to teach on things like salvation. He's going to teach on things like money. He's going to teach on things like divorce and remarriage. He's going to teach on things like sin and faith and prayer and more. He's going to teach on all these things. In this next section of just this discipleship training from chapter 15, verse 1, on to the end of the journey, he's going to teach on these things for his disciples to learn. So here we sit. We sit in chapter 15. Now, what has just recently happened? In chapter 14, it marks the end, listen, it marks the end of of really the focus of this indicting the Pharisees. You saw in chapter 14, Jesus, listen, listen, very important, Jesus pointed out four major hindrances to what is preventing the Pharisees to coming to saving faith. He talks about their spiritual hypocrisy, caring more about being spiritually clean on the outside than being spiritually clean on the inside. He talks about their lack of humility, their pride. He, he talks about them caring about earthly reward more than heavenly reward. He, he, cares, he, he talks about them having earthly priorities where this invitation for salvation has come and they say, oh, let me first go do this. There's all these hindrances to salvation that they're blind to. That's how he finishes this indictment of the Pharisees in those chapters uh, 12 through 14. And listen, here we are leading up to our passage. At the end of chapter 14, he then turns from indicting what is pre- the Pharisees, from what is preventing them from coming to salvation. And he turns and he says, now if you desire to be saved, Here's what it will cost. He gives this sin that's preventing salvation, and then at the end of chapter 14, the cost passage he gives, here's what will be required if you desire salvation. You understand? Now, as we move into 15, we just, let's just remove the chapter heading, remove the page break. These are the people who are responding to his invitation. That's the account of chapter 15 here. He gives the indictment, the sin preventing the Pharisees from coming to saving faith. And then he invites people to be saved. Here's what will cost you. You must count the cost or don't come, lest you prove to be false disciples. And in chapter 15, we see a series of responses from his invitation and what we see is that the Pharisees have not realized their sin. They do not want to embrace the cost, and they do not want to be saved. And these sinners understand their sin. They want to follow Christ and embrace the, co- the cost, and they are coming to Jesus. So this is what sets us up. Now, as we move into the chapter, we're going to see A series of points. Let me just introduce these headings to you as we look more closely at the matter. Here's the three points and the three sub points that we're going to see. Number one, we're going to see the sinner's response. Jesus points out all this sin that is preventing the Pharisees from coming to saving faith. He gives this uncompromising demand of what it will take to follow him. And then we see these series of responses. The first is the sinner's response. The second is the Pharisees' response. The third is then Jesus' response to the Pharisees' response. And in Jesus' response, he gives a set of three parables. The first two must be taken together because the, the, the just, we, I just come back next week and repeat the same things I'm saying this week. So we're going to take them together and look at them as one. A series of three parables that are really all showing the same, the same truth. So these first two parables then we see, we see the condition, we see the intention, and we see the application. Meaning this, the condition is this loss and this search. There's the loss, Roman numeral one, the loss and the search, verses four and verse eight. We see the rescue and the joy. Verses 5 through 6 and verse 9. That's the intention. And we see the application, God's joy over repentant sinners. Verses 7 and verse 10. Let me say this again. We'll see the sinner's response, verse 1. We'll see the Pharisee's response, verse 2. We'll see Jesus' response, verses 3 through 10, which includes this parable of a condition, an intention, and an application. The condition is the loss and the search. That's what state These sinners are in. The intention is to rescue and save, or the the rescue and the joy, verses 5 through 6 and verse 9, and then we see the application, which is God's joy over repentant sinners. So to to make this clear, let's take these verses or these headings one at a time. Ready? Number one, the sinner's response. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to what? To what? To hear him. Now, listen. After Jesus gives this call, this invitation, these high demands for salvation, he ends it It closes the invitation by saying something very pointed and also very familiar. He says, he who has ears, let him what? Hear. Hear. You know what that means? It means if you have ears, does anybody in this room have ears? Okay. Listen carefully to what Jesus is saying. And if you erase the page break, erase chapter 15, erase the heading, after he says, he who has ears, let him hear, we are told that the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to what? Here. They come close to here. They just probably observed this this uh, serious demeanor of Jesus. They heard his invitation. They heard the high demands. Don't follow me unless you're going to give up everything and follow me, lest you prove to be a false disciple later. But don't reject this message. And he says, he who has ears, hear, hear this. And then the very next verse, we see that the sinner's and the tax collectors were drawing near to here. And they're responding to this message. Either they had believed at this point or they're dis- and decided to follow him. And maybe even some of the sitting down and eating with them is part of a celebration that we kind of see in this passage about Jesus rejoicing over sinners. Maybe they've already repented and believed, but certainly they're embracing Jesus Embracing the high cost and desiring to hear more about following him. So Jesus is with them. At the very least, they've continued with him. They're counting the cost. They're eating with him. Maybe this is part of the celebration of Jesus saving them, but maybe this is them just simply hearing it and coming to have more. Now, verse 1 says this. It says Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were, what, all drawing near. It's an exaggeration. Not every tax collector and sinner in the whole universe was drawing near, but it shows the magnitude of the amount of people who were responding to Christ's message. And we first see the tax collectors. Now, these tax collectors, just to state it simply, you guys know, they were Jews who collected taxes on behalf of who? Rome, and so they they were despised. Listen, they were despised by Jews, who appalled them, and they were seen as traitors to the Jewish society. Right? Why? Because they would collect taxes from their own people. They would be working for the Roman authorities, and and all of this. They was dis, there was dishonesty that filled all of this, because they would ask for or demand more than what was required, because they had the authority of Rome behind them, they would then pocket the excess, and they would pay back to Rome what was required. You understand? And so the Romans knew they did this, but this was part of the incentive of the job. Right, You got someone who's on the inside collecting taxes and they're, they're stealing and they're being dishonest, but it works to Rome's advantage. And so the Jews despised them because they were dishonest and they were extorting their own people. And then also they were despised by Romans because they weren't true Romans. So they kind of sat in this middle ground of the scum of the earth, right? No one liked them, but they were making money. And then secondly, we see that there are sinners. Now, the term sinners, you might say that's confusing because everybody's a what? A sinner. Well, that's true. And so in part here, we see a couple of aspects. First, that these are the people that know that they're sinners, right? Who are aware of their sin, obviously, by Jesus's uh, truth and invitation. You understand that? Jesus is making clear in this parable that he rejoices when a sinner realizes that they're a sinner. He has no need for the 99 righteous who need no repentance. Not, he doesn't rejoice in that, not that there are any sinners who need no repentance. They just don't realize it. You understand? That's the Pharisees here. They, they are sinners. They just don't see it. It's like when Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners, or the physician has come not to call those who are well, but who? The, The sick. There's not anybody who is well. There's nobody who is righteous. Everybody's sick. Everybody's a sinner. He's come to call those who will come to terms with their sinful condition, who will believe it, who will embrace it. And who will turn to Christ because they realize it and then be saved. And so these sinners are those who are coming to terms with their own sinful condition. And then we see also that we know these sinners are described often as just as those who are spiritually unclean. They've been unfaithful. They are unfaithful to God's law. And therefore, they've forfeited their relationship to God. That's who's drawing near. And... Uh, Oftentimes we make an emphasis of the, the poor, the lowly, the downcast, the, the outcast, and, and the Scripture does show a particular compassion towards them, but they are, just because you're poor doesn't make you any more savable, right? The, the emphasis is on those who realize that they are, that they're sinners, whether you're wealthy or poor. Everyone needs to come to terms with their sinful condition and turn to Christ to be be saved, right? Sinners who realize their sin and turn to Christ, that's what God desires. We're all sinners. Some of us just don't come to terms with it. So, here, they're drawing even more near, verse 1, to who? To Christ, and they're drawing near to hear. This is the response of Christ's invitation. Now let's look at those who have rejected Christ's invitation. Right? Number two, we see the Pharisees' response. Number one, in verse one, the sinner's response. And number two, verse two, we see the Pharisees' response. And the scribes as well. It says this. And the Pharisees and the scribes did what? Grumbled, saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. Can you believe this? Listen, that's why it's so important that you happen to understand what happened in chapter 14. He just got done pointing out four things that are preventing them from salvation. And then he just got done giving them the requirements for true discipleship. And instead of responding to hear more, to turn from their sin, to trust in Christ, to be saved, they respond by grumbling at Jesus. Right? That's how they respond to Christ. They are truly blind to their own sin. They're truly blind. It would be like Jesus, which he does in the scriptures, makes clear your sinful condition. It would be like Jesus, what he does in the scriptures, making clear what it would require for you to be saved. And it would be instead of you turning from your sin and drawing near to Christ, instead grumbling about the message Grumbling about the requirements, grumbling about the nature and character of God, grumbling that you got to sit here and listen to his message, grumbling that you have Christians around you who are trying to evangelize you. And the truth of the matter is the Bible describes you then as just blind, spiritually blind. And that is a sad state to be in. He who has ears let him hear take seriously the cost of what Jesus is saying here and the invitation that he gives to salvation. The Pharisees are rejecting it. The Pharisees are general gatekeepers of the Jewish religion. They're about middle class. They're middle class Jewish leaders. There's this you guys know, there's the different factions. There's the scribes, the lawyers, the rabbis, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and more. And the Pharisees were about the middle class. They, they, what, described, what, what would describe a Pharisee? Well, there's a lot of different things, but they added man-made laws to Scripture, right? They, they didn't think they were sinners in need of saving. They, they, loved and, they thought they were loved and commended by God as they are, which, just to be honest with you, some say, well, you know, Pharisees would be the righteous people who are, you know, are wanting to follow God's word in every area. That's not true. You know what would be more almost comparable to a Pharisee? Would be a modern-day um, liberal, spiritually liberal person who thinks that God loves them just as they are. God wants you to be transformed by the gospel. You don't have righteousness in yourself before God. That's what the Pharisees believe. They believed that they, who they were because of being Abraham's descendants, just like oftentimes people believe because of who they are and their family lineage. But these people particularly thought because you know, the Old Testament promises that they were, because they were Abraham's descendants, they were righteous before God. They preached a false gospel. They were hypocrites. The scribes, on the other hand, were more of the spiritual intellectual hypocrites. They, they had the same characteristics, but they wrote and kept the Jewish law. And listen, these factions hated each other. You understand that? And I'm sure you know that. They hated each other. Still, you know, they, they worked together if it served each other's hypocrisy. One could benefit the other, right? And they worked together particularly in opposing Jesus, they all hated Jesus because he threatened to undermine all of their authority. So these were the characteristics, and these two groups responded to Jesus' message. He's shown them their sin. He's invited them to salvation, and they respond by grumbling, what, against him. So Jesus is not the one that they want, nor is his message the one that they, they want. And what, look, look at verse 2. They are grumbling, but what are they grumbling specifically about? That this man receives what? Sinners. This man in the Greek is a term that means this one. Like this one. I could see the Italians saying this one, right? I look at Tony. This one, he receives sinners. To receive here in the Greek means to, to uh, show goodwill towards. Goodwill towards these people who have recognized their sin, unlike us who are blinded to our sin, even though Jesus has made it clear and that they have come to him to draw near to hear more about salvation. He receives them. And it's clear, the Pharisees have no association with these people who don't abide by their man-made laws. And it's clear here that the Pharisees' minds are not on what Jesus' mind is on. Which leads us to our third point, which is Jesus' response. We see the sinner's response, we see the Pharisees' response, and we see Jesus' response mainly to the Pharisees. This whole parable, and really these three Parables are a response to the Pharisees' rejection. Okay? And these three parables, let me just make mention briefly, are, are just really showing nearly the same main point in all of them. There's the same elements, like the father, the the lost, the the, the woman, the, the shepherd, who all lose something like a sheep or a coin or what? A son right there's the losing there's the finding there's then the gathering together those who rejoice in in the finding right there there's there's all of these elements and then the the element that ties them all together not only the joy of the one who finds it not only the the lostness of the of the elements that are that are lost but also the theme that ties them all together, listen now, is repentance. Repentance and, its, and its, um, its requirement for salvation and that God rejoices in that. In the first two parables, we're told this at the end. Being found is really equivalent to repenting and being saved, right? In the, in the third parable, the repentance part, is like expanded. We, we see more of a detailed story about repentance, right? But the key element here is, it, the point is not, well, let me tell you, Pharisees, I, I, I search for and rejoice over sinners in the way that they are, and, and that should be, you know, and that's my, um, that's the one thing that I want to spend my time um, doing and et cetera, as if the sinner doesn't need to change. Jesus is specifically saying that God rejoices when the sinner repents and is saved. That's what he desires, and that's why he's sitting with these sinners. So Jesus responds to the Pharisees, and all of what proceeds from this point is a response to the Pharisees. Verses 3 through 10, let's just read them, and then we'll cover them for the rest of our time, which will just really drive home and make clear the main point of the section. Verses 3 through 10, so he told them this parable. That's pretty clear, isn't it? The reason why he is telling them these parables is because the Pharisees said he's eating with Sinners. He's explaining, here's why I'm with the sinners. He told them this in response. You see that? It's easy to, to see. And them here in the Greek, um, it would be clear that it, the, he's referring to the scribes and the, and the Pharisees. All this is a response, right? And, um, um, and so let's read it. Verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep... If he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice! Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven." over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse eight, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. I, just so I tell you, There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who, what? Repents. So, the point of this thing is, of what Jesus is doing here, he's asking two rhetorical questions in parabolic form that are meant to trap the Pharisees. Okay? So, he's asking questions of these Pharisees, and they're going to say, of course a shepherd would go after his lost sheep. Of course a a woman who loses a coin would search diligently for that coin. And the point then becomes clear like a knife to the heart. Of course God would pursue a lost sinner and rejoice over their repentance. Why wouldn't I be with these sinners who are responding to my message? How much more, right? So we see God's joy in salvation and the reason why Jesus is with these sinners in these, three set, in these three headings. The first we see is the condition, which is the loss and the search. The loss and the search, Roman numeral one, under Jesus' response, verse four and verse eight. Let's read them. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Verse 8. Almost a parallel verse here. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she what? Finds it. Now, these two parables are unique to Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel. It's really important that you understand that. You know, let me just say this. And as you read the Gospels, there are many times where you can read one thing in one Gospel and and the similar parallel passage in in the other Gospel and one clarifies the other because it has certain details that the other leaves out. But you need to be really careful when you do that because Jesus oftentimes uses the similar teaching in another setting, and and the point is different. He just uses the same elements. So the first parable, there is a similar teaching in Matthew chapter 18, but it's not the same teaching with the same point. In Matthew 18, the point is speaking to the church. He just got done speaking of church discipline. And then he speaks of a sheep going astray. And this is speaking of, and you can see it in the wording, you can see it in the context, you understand the teaching of it. This speaks of a believer within the church who is going astray who leaves the congregation and who goes after their sin. And this is really speaking of in Matthew chapter 18, the pastoral care and even the church's care to pursue one who's gone astray to save them from proving to be a false disciple. Meaning we should go after, when we have members of this church who who go out and who leave and who start pursuing their own sin and who are being deceived and, and being corrupted by the world, we should go after them. And, and, and try to pull them back so that not one of God's children, if they are his true children, perish, right? And if they're not and they prove to be a false disciple, they will perish. That's the point of Matthew 18, uh, a similar parallel passage. The point here is God rejoices over the sinner who realizes their sin condition, repents and is saved more than those who are sinners still don't realize their sin, con, sinful condition and are not saved, right? Neither one of these passages are saying God prefers, um, you know, sitting with the lowly more than he prefers uh, Christians to grow in their holiness and become spiritually mature. Oftentimes, we, we use these passages, especially in the seeker model churches, for that kind of teaching, Read the the whole New Testament. God desires for you to mature in your faith and to grow, right? He rejoices in that, and he rejoices in the sinner's repentance. But here specifically, speaking of the sinner who doesn't realize they're a sinner, doesn't come to saving faith, and the one who is a sinner realizes their sin and is saved right? That's the, the point of this. So there's a similar passage in that, Matthew 18, but it's a different point. And the, parale, the par, uh, parable of the coin, there's no, there's no parallel. So just a side note, but we're under this loss in the search where Jesus is explaining why he's with these sinners and explaining his joy in a repentant sinner or joy in salvation. He says in verse 4, what man of you? And Jesus is speaking essentially of a shepherd, right you can tell by the content of the parable he's speaking of who a shepherd and this is really rubbing the salt in the wound because he's saying to the pharisees which man of you as if there would be a shepherd among them you know what shepherds were they were not of high status let's just say that right but even and it shows furthermore the the further spiritual blindness of the pharisees because how many significant spiritual leaders are there in the Old Testament who are described as shepherds. The, the, the Pharisees are blind. This, isn't, this is rubbing salt in the wound and saying, what shepherd among you? As if they would say, shepherd among us, right? He's going to get to his point. Verse 8, this is even more offensive, honestly. He says, what woman... Um, Women were despised equally, if not more, than the shepherds, right? By, by the, the shepherds were of low status, and, uh, and women um, were, were treated without any respect. Now, the shepherds, listen, why? one of the reasons is that they were also spiritually unclean because sheep have to be cared for how many days a week, do you think? Seven. You know what that would mean, that they worked on the what? Sabbath. So these shepherds, they were spiritually unclean. They weren't allowed to testify in court, etc. And women were, were treated even worse. So back to verse 4. What man having 100 sheep. Now this is a pretty modest flock. Uh, you know, uh, commentators would say that 200 um, is, a, is, a, is about an average flock. 300, you, you got a, a pretty big flock. So this is a pretty modest flock. So again, it, it's, it's offensive. You speak of a shepherd and, and even one who only has 100 sheep. Go to verse 8. This is still pretty modest. A woman having 10 silver coins and uh, one coin as described here is a drachma, which is an, an equivalent to a denarius, which is one day's wage. So she's got 10 of them, which is how many days wage? 10. Good job. So in this case, the shepherd, he has lost what? One, and then in verse 8, the woman, she has lost, what? One. And in verse 8, would she not, right, if she loses one coin, light a lamp, sweep the house, diligently seek and find it. Verse 4, would the shepherd not leave the 99 in the open country, meaning the wilderness, which I think even further shows he's speaking of lost, the, 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 the 99 other lost people, who don't realize their sin, they're in the wilderness. Would he not leave them in the wilderness? Matthew 18, when speaking of this parable, speaks of leaving the other 99 on the mountain, different from the wilderness. I think the language is purposeful. And so this one goes out, he leaves the 99 in the the wilderness. Would he not go out and do what? Go after it until he finds it. Now this is, Important. I told you that the the these elements represent certain things. Now stay with me. The sheep, they're stupid, they're senseless, and they're helpless. And you're being, you and I are being compared to these sheep. Okay. In the in the meaning of the parable. Okay. Now listen. the the, the sheep they were they were uh, subject to threat by by predators. Um, and, by, and, and to themselves, because sheep would either be eaten by predators or they would find like a, a divot in the ground, a, 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 um, I don't know, a, a hole in the ground and they would roll on their back in it and their feet would leave the ground and they would start frantically moving their feet, no longer able to touch the ground, they would lay there and the die. So they could either die because of themselves or because of a predator. And so the shepherd has to go out and find it. And, and the coin, the, it's not going to find itself. Now, I think both of these cases speak of God's sovereignty and salvation. He goes, he finds, he picks up, he carries where? Home. This is God's sovereign work in salvation. Now, listen, this is important. He goes and he finds it. He would go and he would look until he finds the dead remains of the sheep or until he finds the sheep, and carries it back home. The woman would search until she she finds the coin. coin. This is the condition, and he's explaining, here's why I'm with these sinners who have responded to my message. Secondly, we see, we gotta move fast for the next um, couple of points, so just stay with me. We see the intention, which is the rescue and the joy. Here is what Jesus is aiming to do. This is why I'm with the sinners, The rescue and joy, verses 5 through 6 and verse 9. When he has found it, he lays it where? On his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends, his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was what? Lost. And almost in the exact same language, verse 9. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and what? Neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Almost the exact same language. And and the idea is here that the lost are being found. Now, let me tell you, in the context of this, being found is equivalent to repenting from sin. That's the equivalent of being found. He rejoices in one sinner who repents. Here's why I'm with the sinners. Because they hear my invitation. And I desire and rejoice over them repenting from their sin. That I would recover them. That they would be saved. And this speaks of God's sovereignty in pursuing and saving that sinner. The responsibility of repentance by the sinner and the sovereign work of God in salvation. To save the sinner. And so, we see this here. He said in verse 6, after he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together friends and neighbors. And in verse 9, when she finds it, she comes together and calls what? Friends and same thing. Now, we, what we didn't say in verse 8 is she lights a lamp. She seeks, look at this. She's searching diligently. Listen. She lights a lamp. They had these homes that had no windows. She sweeps, probably with a broom made of, um, made of uh, a palm, palm branches. And she finds the coin. He finds the, the sheep. And there's a rejoicing and a gathering. And honestly, together here, what we see is the, the verb, the Greek verb that's used to call together is a formal it's a formal celebration. It's representing God's joy and heaven's joy in saving the sinner. Right? And so in both parables we find this, and really the third parable as well. It's just more drawn out. We see more of of the details. And so here the shepherd representing the Father God and the the woman as well. And and the what is lost representing the sinner and being found representing repentance and faith and and the celebration representing heaven's joy and and God's joy in the salvation of, of sinners. And then it leads us to our final point that we'll make briefly, which is God's joy over the repentant sinner in verses seven through through 10. Here's where Jesus makes the application. Verse seven, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there, will be, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is why I'm with these sinners who have responded to my invitation. Because I desire for them to repent of their sin and what? Be saved and I rejoice when they do so. When they do so, I mean, it's very clear, verse 7, just so. I mean, in verse 10, just so. Here's the point of what I'm telling you. Here's why I've told you this. Here's why I'm with them. How can you not understand this? In the first parable, he says there will be joy. In the second parable, he says there is joy. It's a present and a future rejoicing in a repentant sinner who is saved. Right? And uh, the danger of death has been taken away. The danger of being permanently lost has been taken away. And uh, there's joy in heaven or there's joy before angels. This includes God's joy. And again, over the 99 who repent or over one sinner who repents. And not that there's righteous people who need no repentance because even a Christian needs repentance. But over the one like the Pharisees, this continues to be an indictment who doesn't see their need to repent and be saved. So here in this passage, we see God's joy in salvation, in a sinner repenting from their sin and being saved. So to close again Listen just carefully. 30 seconds. If you do not know Christ, the greatest thing that you could do would be to turn from your sin. Realize your sinful condition. Understand that you are a sinner. That you need to repent. Ask God to open up your eyes to the blindness that you have about your sin if if you don't see it. Hear his high cost, his high demand of what it really means to follow him and respond to him in faith, in repentance and faith. If you know Christ, that you would understand this joy that God has in saving sinners, that you would pursue sinners to see them recognize their sin, turn from their sin and be saved. Your neighbor and the nations, go after them. And thirdly, that you would understand God's heart here. This is why he's with these sinners. He rejoices in their repentance, and that's what he desires to happen. He wants the sinners to repent, to be saved. That's why he's with them. That's what he desires. And that's what they're doing as they respond to his invitation. So, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that teaches us, even now, your saving work your joy in salvation, that we would understand as Jesus, you are training disciples to understand this as you are saving sinners, as you are indicting Pharisees, that we would understand this teaching about salvation, this doctrine, this teaching from Scripture about salvation, that you rejoice. In the sinner's repentance, not for the sinner to stay the same, not for the sinner to believe they are loved and accepted by you in their own state, in their own condition, by their own righteousness, but through repentance and faith in Christ, that we would understand that we should embrace your high demands and call for true discipleship and be saved. That we would not have the mind of the Pharisees who do not desire to see this happen, but that we would sit with those who desire, understand their sin and desire to be saved. That we would sit with them and help them to be saved. And thank you, God, for giving us an understanding of your attribute of joy, particularly in salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.